Hello, Janet. Thank you for joining us on Rights, Rorts and Rants to tell us about the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign. Thank you, Deb. It's uh, great to be here. I'm, I'm hoping that most of your listeners will find this relevant because there are about 8 million people on either Job Seeker or Job Keeper. And so if they're not directly on it, they probably know somebody who is. That's right. Someone in their family is probably affected or someone, someone dear to them at least. Yes. Yes. We really need your independent media to get the message out too because we don't, we're all volunteers and we don't have any access to the major media outlets. That's hard, actually, getting, getting other voices out there. It can be overwhelmed, can't it? Yes, media, media access is a big problem. Okay, so can you tell our listeners about the aims of the campaign and how it began? Yeah, okay, so our four main demands for the campaign uh, that fall under the broad banner of living incomes for everyone, and uh, the first one is to keep the job seeker rate of $1,100 a fortnight. Uh, we're also demanding that no one be left behind, uh, that it be expanded to include people who are excluded. We demand end of harassment and for social security with dignity, and we're demanding secure homes for everyone. So there are four main demands, and each one of them has more detail, um, yep. but take, I won't read it all out now. Um, it, our campaign can be joined by both individuals and organisations. Mm -hmm. um, so solidarity is our underlying principle, and so existing organisations of working class people standing up for their rights are, are vital to our ability to build solidarity. Uh, okay, yep. that, that's an important thing to Blue Mountains unions and community. We pre-pandemic, what we mainly did was hold politics in the pub, apart from this radio show. But we always ask our speakers to bring something, not just to complain about something that they're not happy with, to actually bring some action that people can take. Otherwise, everyone just goes away angry and powerless. <laughs> you know, you've got to be able to... So we encourage yes. activism. Yep. Okay. So apart from the obvious aim of preventing a large number of people from falling into or remaining in poverty, one of the aims of JobKeeper payment and the coronavirus supplement to JobSeeker was to keep the economy going, but with no certainty of how long the payments would continue or what rate. With what we're seeing instead is people saving their money, paying down debt or taking other measures to, pre to prepare for worse times ahead. Um, I might add to that that so one of the proposals the government's making at the moment is tax cuts, which really only benefit people at the top of the income scale. And those people don't actually spend their money, create jobs, keep things going. Um, so how important is the certainty of keeping these amounts stable? Uh, I, I think for people who are receiving it, stability is essential. Um, it, it, stability is a need so that people can be a, make plans for their lives. And uh, income security has been a growing problem for Australian workers since the 1990s mm -hmm. and this was just uh, a welcome lifeline uh, that we want to preserve and incorporate as a permanent level of payment rather than having income support at a level that causes insecurity and poverty and a lot of that insecurity has been about ensuring a cheap and flexible labour supply to employers yes. and uh, that's why we think the government has resisted so hard increasing New Start, not not because the budget can't afford it. There was a small amount of people unemployed then when um, those demands were being made, a relatively small amount, and they've been able to double it for a much larger number of people. We think it's about 
maintaining a supply of cheap labour in the economy and dragging down the bottom, the floor to which people can be pushed down if they don't accept crappy work? Yes, um, changing the industrial laws, like moving that balance of power in the industrial legislation has been on their agenda for a long, long time. This is all part of that. I'm pretty sure we agree with you on that one. Yes, well, people need to be able to plan when they're going to pay their rent. Can they put food on the table next week? And what we've seen is casualisation of the workforce and the lousy amount of payment on um, Centrelink payments is really makes it hard for people to do that. In fact, it even interferes with their ability to look for work. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I think the Business Council of Australia has actually said that, of all people. But I, I, think, I think it's uh, broader than, than just the low income. A, a, an accompanying aspect of unemployment is underemployment, and there have been at least as many people who are short of sufficient hours of work, and a lot of people who are cobbling together bits and pieces of work from different employers, a lot of casual, insecure work where people don't know how long they're going to have it. And it's not just being able to pay rent. People with mortgages are equally squeezed, mm -hmm. and um, many, many people uh, don't have enough savings um, to be able to cope with an emergency such as a needing to go to the dentist or, or even to be able to take a holiday like, like other people can. So it's, it's not just a question of poverty, it's a question of insecurity and instability yeah. that can affect people um, at all different levels of income. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons this campaign is important. We're trying to reach out to everybody and get all workers to realise that we're in this together, even whether you're on the worst, pointiest end of it or somewhere on the scale, um, we can all fall down that ladder and, and we're kept on that ladder by this whole system. Yeah. I'm going to plead guilty. I used to work for Centrelink and I often saw people who would sit in front of me and they say they would say, I never thought I would be in this situation. I thought I had a secure job. I never thought I would be sitting here. And um, I would often think, I sort of couldn't really say much back to that, except, you know, sorry that you're here. But I would often think most Australians are really only one or two pay packets away from being in a Centrelink office. It really is that dire. Yes, but but I also think a lot of people don't think of themselves in that way. And it's it's important to try to get people to understand the, the issue and why it matters, how badly people are treated when they do get in that position, and that whether you get in it or not, it's in your interests to to support dignity for everybody. Yes, that's right. Uh, and this is where the demonisation of people on Centrelink payments mm. comes in, mm. which is also covered in one of your points, End Unionists. And what he said was, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. When I did work for Centrelink, I noticed that often potentially unpopular programs were often first applied to groups who had little public sympathy. So, for example, Work for the Dial was initially rolled out to young people um, and then later on it was rolled out to older people who didn't like it at all. They thought only young people should do that. But really, if they'd spoken out for you know, stood up for young people in the first place. It wouldn't have been mm. rolled out to everybody. 
Um, the other one was the cashless welfare card. That started with uh, Aboriginal citizens, and it's um, it's still on a 12-month trial five years later, I believe. Now, living incomes for everyone also has a position on this sort of harassment of social security people. Yes, we're completely against the cashless debit card, um, work for the doll and uh, mutual obligation. Um, particularly with the um, cashless welfare card, it's important for people to be aware that there is a transition bill um, in the parliament that the government wants to get passed. Um, and uh, if that bill is passed in the Senate, all the caps and limits that are currently preventing a national rollout of cashless debit cards will be gone for good. And one of the things the cashless debit card it could be rolled out to aged pensioners. It could be rolled out to everybody on a government. In that wouldn't it doesn't mean the government is about to do that, but it means the government would be able to do that legally. And at the moment, uh, it's 80% of your income is put onto the cashless debit card, and you only get 20% cash to spend uh, where, where you where you want to. Um, it's it's very punitive, and uh, we've got a lot of information from it. From there's um, two campaigns: No Cashless Welfare Debit Card Australia and Say No Seven, that have provided us excellent research on this topic. And you can find out a lot about it on um, a summary about it on our website blog. Okay. And the crazy thing about the the cashless welfare card is, well, firstly, it's a private company controlling citizens' money. Um, That's right. Which, They're making a profit out of it. Indu is the company. Yep, which is actually against social security law because social security law says that you, your payment is inalienable, meaning it can't mm. be it can't be diverted to a third party without your permission. But the other thing is, the last figure I saw it was about ten thousand dollars per year per card to administer, which you would think would actually do more good in the pockets of the people on Centrelink payments. Yes, or in employing people directly in the Commonwealth Public Service to, to do it. I'm sure that it could be done for less than that. I think it partly puts the lie to the idea that um, things have been taken out of the public sector and privatised because private enterprise can do it at a lower cost and more efficiently. It's been done so that private enterprise can make more profit out of yeah. people. Yeah, actually I commented yesterday on a friend's Facebook page she she works for the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, and so talking about privatising of Sydney buses. So the comment that I made was that when public services, the whole point of a public service is provide a need that can't be met by private companies. And when it is privatised, it's still subsidised by the government, so it's not profitable. And or the other thing that happens is they change the rules, so that company's not taking the risks that a normal business would be taking. It's yes, they're given a guarantee. They're given a guarantee by the government of yeah. a, a certain level of earnings. Yeah. Yes. So it's not it's not actually um, profitable, nor is it actually providing a service to all of the, all of the people that it's servicing. So. It's, well, well, it's profitable to the private company because they're getting paid a guaranteed fee by the government. It's it's not it's not. For the benefit of the public purse. Yes, but if it, if it wasn't for that support from the government, it wouldn't be a profitable business at all. That's right. It's a government subsidy to a private enterprise that, for something that should be being provided as a public service yeah. so and, you, and not for profit. Mm. And, and the other case for Centrelink workers, actually, and I, the, the other problem with Centrelink is that uh, they're starting to hire labour hire people instead of 
permanent public servants. Yes, that's right. The other problem, or the other thing with that is that it could then be done on a case-by-case basis, so that budget counselling could be only applied to people who actually need some help with managing their money and not just a a blanket, you're you're on a Centrelink payment, you're useless, you can't do it yourself. Yeah, frankly, I think that um, if you've managed to live on a Centrelink payment, you're probably extremely good at budgeting your money. Anyway, we're getting into what I think and not what you're, you've got to say. So. <laughs> so what's the benefit of paying JobKeeper directly to workers instead of via employers? Well, uh, you might have heard there's been many reports of rorts at JobKeeper, yeah. um, withholding of it, imposing additional hours of work, um, with, unless, uh, unless additional hours of work are done refusing to pay. Um, it's been used for executive bonuses and to pay dividends to shareholders. Um, yep. In uh, Adair's, Nick Scarley and Smiles have been named in that regard. Uh, it, it's another illustration of how difficult it is to get the intended results that supposedly governments intended by subsidising private enterprise. Uh, it's it's another um, reason for the aged care inquiry, in fact. Yes, yes, which is another privatisation <laughs> problem, aged yes. care. So it could be argued that The pandemic happened, this thing was rolled out in a rush, but really governments know that one day there's going to be a pandemic or some other natural disaster. So really that excuse doesn't really hold because they should have planned for this happening anyway. They should have had a plan in place saying, okay, if a pandemic happens, how are we going to support workers and businesses, etc.? So really that excuse doesn't doesn't hold. The Raise the Rate campaign, which is now called the Raise the Rate for Good campaign run by ACOS, called for the raising of New Start Allowance, which is now called Job Seeker. But the Living Income for Everyone campaign goes further than that. So can you explain how much further it goes? And Yes, well, the Raise the Rate campaign um, did specify an amount, um, I think, around $75 or $80 um, a week. Yes. Uh, we, we go further than that because we're arguing to maintain the $1,100 a fortnight, which, which is actually, it's actually um, just gone up slightly in the last inflation. I think it's $1,111.15.75 or it's near enough to 1100 for purposes of uh, the conversation. Yep. So, um, uh, we don't think that the raise the rate amount is nearly enough. Um, the, and we don't think it's because of the amount that it wasn't being raised. We think it's because of the intention to maintain that cheap labour supply that I mentioned. And so, you know, $1,100 is still not enough for a lot of people to live on. Um, there's still a third of the people on job seeker and job keeper um, are having trouble making ends meet on that amount. Um, Mm -hmm. So we think it's really a minimum. So we're going further in that in that we're specifying an amount. ACOS has not been specifying an amount since since the pandemic and since this increase in job seeker. Um, We are also calling for other payments to be lifted to the same level. So some people say a job seeker can't stay at this rate because the aged pension is lower. We're saying raise the aged pension to this rate too. The aged pension hasn't been reviewed for a long time. And we're also calling for the inclusion of excluded people, such as international students, temporary visa holders and asylum seekers who've Mm -hmm. all been left out. So they're the two ways in which we go further than the Raise the Rate campaign. And for those people who say only Australian taxpayers should be helped, those people do actually work and pay tax in Australia 
but don't get the benefit of any of that from... from uh, they're also brought here to feed the hunger of privatised universities for students. Yes. Uh, they're brought here to pick our fruit and vegetables on the cheap so that we don't have to pay properly for the cost... for for people to live decently while they're picking. Yes. So, uh, you know, they're all reasons why it's outrageous that people are excluded. And often, and a lot of them are actually stuck here, even if they want to go home, they can't. So that's the other. Yes. So it's it's not like they have a choice to stay here. And um, as are Australians stuck overseas. So it's. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw in a question, which you, if you can't answer it, don't worry. Do you know about the um, how the pension income test and the um, allowance income test are indexed? Do you know about that? I, um, I, I, what I do know is that Newstart has always been indexed to the um, consumer price index, which yes. is. Yep. Uh, an inadequate reflection of the cost of living, partly because it excludes housing, and housing is one of the most rapidly inflating elements of the cost of living. Um, and I know that there's a special index for the pension, um, which is a, a specially designed household living cost index, HLCI, I think is the acronym that um, the Bureau of Statistics uses. And yep. it's, there's one tailored specifically for aged pensioners, which is a bit more generous than the consumer price index. Still not generous because it doesn't take account of overall changes in living standards and even though earnings are not rising very fast, um, household earnings are rising faster than both those indexes which means that both groups of people are falling behind relative to the social standard of living. Yeah, yeah. and the pension one's got the factor for the percentage of the average male weekly earnings as well which that's why the rates of been going further and further apart over so many years. Are you also pushing for a change? So the methods of indexation for job seeker is the same as what it is for pensions? We, we actually haven't developed um, a demand on that area. Okay. I, I, think, I think what we're looking for in the first place is to win a one-off permanent increase yep. that gives us a platform from which working class organisations can be represented and make their voices heard yep. in a continuing arrangement for maintaining that. But until we can get um, a serious increase in the base, in the current payment, permanently insured, I think we're just fiddling at the edges, honestly, to come up with um, a specific formula for maintenance. Did you know that the government actually wanted to change the pension indexation to the same as the new start one yes yeah, yeah that was floated at one point cutting yep. the indexing of the pension yep. to just the cpi yes yeah. take getting rid of the um the household cost of living index especially yeah. for pensioners they yes. back back down on that one anyway yes well, or they'll probably come back and try again but yeah. for the time yeah. being they back down <laughs> Probably the most important contribution can be made to a person's health, well-being and employability is secure housing. Being homeless actually costs a lot of money. You need somewhere to cook, store your food, wash, all that sort of thing. So what measures need to be taken to ensure that we don't see homelessness increase? Well, I, th I think one of the biggest threats to homes that is often underplayed is the threat of repossession by banks when households can't keep up with mortgage repayments. Yep. Uh, so at the moment, there are possibly around 1.4 million Australian households in mortgage stress. And it's been estimated that 
around 100,000 could default on their home loans as a result. So if you take the average size of a household at, at, at say, three people, that's a, a lot of people could become homeless through repossession of their homes. Uh, Australia's particularly exposed because lenders use the poverty line as a measure to calculate what a household can afford to repay. Um, so any financial stress puts them below that poverty line. So if people have lost employment or hours of work in the pandemic, that banks have maximised the loan amount and um, minimised the financial safety buffers of, of home buyers. Uh, and tenants are then repaying their landlord's mortgages. So actually, I think we really need the banks to not just allow a period of non-payment, non-repayment of loans. We actually need them to cancel or forgive outstanding amounts. We need both banks and landlords to do that over this period so that people aren't accruing debt uh, and they won't be struggling to repay. Uh, we think the banks can afford it and households can't. Mm -hmm. But we also want a big expansion in... I mean, that, that, that would avert an immediate threat of people who are currently in homes from losing their homes. There is, there's still too much homelessness in Australia already prior to the pandemic and we're for um, a big expansion in public housing where rents will be controlled. Not We're not for expanding so-called social and community housing generally because that's actually not under control for levels of rent and tenants' rights. The government did bring out that renovators plan which has had hardly any uptake, didn't do really did nothing for even the stated uh, aims of the economy it did nothing for that or for people yes they should have, that money should be going to constructing public housing but once again this is an indicator what they're interested in is ensuring that money is changing hands and that businesses are making incomes they want builders and and tradespeople to have an opportunity to earn in the market rather than to be employed by the government on building public housing Yes, right. And we, we know with public, particularly in New South Wales, the government is selling public housing in desirable areas. So if you're poor, you can't live somewhere nice. They say that they're going to spend that money on creating more public housing, but that never seems to eventuate. So an example mm. is um, the Redfern Tower Blocks. I don't know how well you know Sydney, but if you, if you know Sydney at all, you'd know mm. those tower blocks. Yes. They're, they're going to be redeveloped. Where they are is a 15-minute walk from the centre of Sydney, from the CBD of Sydney. So what was once not a very nice area to live in is now prime real estate, and that's the reasoning behind it. The uh, the rocks, the, they did the same thing in the rocks. Um, the, there's a block of flats next to the Harbour Bridge, which was public housing. The tenants were kicked out, even people that in their 90s that lived in that area all their life were kicked out and that's still standing empty. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot they're doing wrong with housing that, that could be done better. Well, for them, they don't care about the communities in the housing either. It's not just that the areas are... Um, in places where land values have gone up and they can make a lot of money by selling, it's, they, they have no regard for the communities that people have established by living for a long time in an area and they're breaking up communities. They're, they're, anything that doesn't, they can't put a dollar figure on, they don't value. Yes, it's that saying, um, they know the, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Yes. The other, the other point that occurs to me with or people in rental accommodation we saw this, I think, in the last recession, 
if a landlord defaulted on, on their loan, people in rental properties would just find the bailiff on their front door. They would just get kicked out, mm. not because they hadn't paid their rent, but because the landlord had not paid the mortgage. And ah. I, be I believe there's still no protection for tenants under that as well. Okay. That's probably right. I haven't heard that story. I haven't read about it for a while, but I do remember, mm. I'm pretty sure when mm. the global financial crisis mm. was happening, mm. um, it was happening to people. Mm. And you've got a proposal here, empty dwellings and vacant hotel rooms to be decontaminated and made available to homeless and displaced people. That I believe that's happened somewhere else. Some All of a sudden... Um, with the threat of the pandemic, all of a sudden, I can't remember where it was. It did happen briefly in New South Wales. They had a time limit on it in the first yeah. um, in the first wave of the pandemic in New South Wales. I think they charged uh, part of people's um, income support payment to to do it, but it was not like full hotel rates by any means. Not the three thousand dollars a week that. $3,000 a fortnight they're charging for return travellers to quarantine. Uh, but yes, they could find a, a, a lot of the time the problem in society isn't, isn't that there isn't enough of something, like there is plenty of accommodation. Yep. It's that it, access to it is governed by the market rather than by planning for need. And there's plenty of empty hotel rooms where homeless people could continue to be supported. And apparently it helped a lot of people get back on their feet just having even the few weeks during the COVID lockdown. And if they would provide that for longer it, and indefinitely, it would be a huge help to people who are homeless. Yeah. There's no need There's no need for people to be sleeping rough. There is accommodation available. So a couple of years ago when Gladys Berejiklian didn't like seeing homeless people on the street, the solution was to move them along. Now suddenly there's a actually there is actually a real solution which is give them somewhere to live make you know make it possible for them to to live somewhere and it also goes back to living with dignity which is one of your main goals uh, allowing people to live with dig dignity. Uh, well, we're, we're certainly against the indignity imposed on people through. Uh, the sort of harassment that the social security system engages in, but I think we discussed that a little bit earlier. Yeah. Well, the other thing, um, the at the current rate of job keeper and job seeker, that's really all that's keeping some people hanging on with their mortgage and their rent, I believe. I'm really? sure that's the case. Yeah. So, and what they're talking about reducing it to for people who, for listeners who aren't aware. So from the 28th of September to the 3rd of January, they're going to drop it from um, $1,500 to $1,200 per fortnight for, all, for employees who were working in a business or not-for-profit for 20 hours a week or more on average and to $750 a, a fortnight for people who are working for less than 20 hours a week. And then from the 4th of January to the 28th of March, $1,000 per fortnight um, for 20 hours or more a week and $650 a fortnight for people working less than less than 20 hours a week. So that's the job keeper payment. That contributes to uncertainty. If you don't know if you don't know if you're going to have your job, if you if you're going to be able to meet your bills, it's all contributing to uncertainty. So just to summarise the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign, keeping the rate of job seeker and job keeper paying JobKeeper directly to workers. Number two, that no one's left behind. 
that um, harassment of people on a Centrelink payment ends and we treat people with dignity, treat them the way we'd like to be treated ourselves, really, and that people should have secure homes. How can people support this campaign? What can they do? Okay. Well, the first and simplest thing that people can do is go to our website at livingincomes.org.au and subscribe to our newsletter and that will equip them to keep up with all the other ways that <laughs> all the okay. other things that people can do to support us. So that, that's the first and easiest thing to do um, is to subscribe at livingincomes.org.au and the subscribe form is on on um, every page of our website, so you can't get away from it. Um, <laughs> um, the, the other things that uh, that people can do is um, just, I had a kind of a, um, make, make sure you stay informed. So follow our Facebook page, come to our website. And if you agree with us um, and you'd like to be more involved, uh, you can come to our online meetings. Um, meetings are currently online mainly. Um, ask your community or union group to endorse, particularly the Blue Mountains um, community unions would be great. Um, and we're looking for more than just formal endorsements because uh, we, we've got a lot of formal endorsements that we need to translate into members of organisations actually coming along and turning up to our events and representatives of the organisations helping, uh, coming along and um, contributing to the actions we decide to take and the policies we develop. So you know, we're continuing to develop our demands. For example, the um, housing demand we only added uh, last month after realising that it was such a critical aspect of people having a living income. Um, yes, and we want you to tell your friends and check out the events on our Facebook page. Come along when you can, especially to online events. And if you can get Blue Mountains Community Unions to even organise some local actions that would involve people, your listeners, that would be even better. Okay. And you've got a campaign <laughs> starting on the 18th of September, I believe? Yes, we've got a week of action um, in advance of the uh, cuts that are expected on the 25th of September, so from the 18th to the 24th. Uh, there are various actions, some online, some located physically. Um, we have to be COVID safe and work in subgroups of 20 people and so on. Um, but anything you can do locally would be good, whether it's targeting um, an MP or um, a job network provider or a Centrelink office or um, wherever you think you can make yourselves heard in support of these demands right. would be great. Actually, I saw on your, on your website that the CPSU has come on board, and the CPSU is the union that actually uh, Centrelink workers belong to. Um, yes, where it's that's um, a great endorsement from the CPSU because they've not only endorsed, but they've given us um, a name of a contact person in each state or territory who we yep. can work with on actions, and they're sending a representative to our weekly general meeting. So it's um, a meaningful engagement with a union, um, not just uh, for form having put their name on our list, but then we don't really hear too much more from them. Yeah, and and they have asked that if you want to target a Centrelink office just to let them know so the local delegate can will know about yes. it. Yep. Yes, that's right. That's, that's a good point, Deb. I'm glad you raised that. And uh, so through life, we can, we can make sure we get in touch with the right person at CPSU. So that's uh, another good reason yeah. for 
coming along and being in touch with us if you want to organise something under our banner. Yes, because a lot of people that work for Centrelink don't actually agree with what the government's doing, but they're they're gagged from saying anything um, under threat of losing their job, basically. And the other thing, too, it's not... Targeting workers doesn't change anything. Targeting... No. Targeting the people who are making the rules uh, and are forcing this on people, that's that's what changes things. So, yeah. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to add at all? Uh, look, I think you've given me plenty of airspace. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, it's great. I really hope the listeners enjoy hearing about this campaign and they might take some inspiration from thinking you don't have to put up with having uh, your income cut by these changes in government policy and that as more people realise what's what the implications are, that um, you'll want to get involved and stand up for yourself. Okay. I'll raise it at our next general meeting on the first Sunday of October as well. It's a great campaign. Thanks very much for talking to us this afternoon. Thank you, Deb. Thanks for having me. Okay, then.